This is episode 189 of the Beyond the Food Show. And today I'm sharing with you the amazing work of Jess Baker, liberating your body, a call to arm for women of all sizes. Stay tuned. Welcome to the Going to Beyond the Food Show. I'm Stephanie Dozier, clinical nutritionist and emotional eating expert, creator of the Going to Beyond the Food Method and founder of the Going to Beyond the Food Academy. Corporate executive turned health expert with my own journey with weight, body image, and food. It's now my mission to help smart, successful women like you live confidently right now and unconditionally. Ready, sister? Let's do this. Hello, sisters. Welcome back. This is Stephanie here, and I'm having a fangirl moment today. Today, I have the honor to introduce you to someone who was introduced to me by a friend of mine and she, that wonderful and amazing Jess Baker and the impact that she had on my life. She introduced me to feminism angle and body image. She impacted me so much that I recently added a bonus class to our Going Beyond the Food Health Mastery program, and I taught the ladies in my program to consider their body liberation as an act of feminism. And I want you to pay real close attention to the teaching of Jess around this because I believe that we are facing the third wave of feminism in front of us by putting diet culture to its end, by accepting our body as is, by being neutral with our body. Now to celebrate this, If you're listening live, meaning you're listening the day that the podcast was released or around that, I have decided to create something totally free for all of you, my sisters. It's a five-day body acceptance challenge. It is totally free for you to join. The link will be in the show notes, stephaniedodzier slash 189 or you can come to www.stephaniedoze.com slash body acceptance, and you will see a registration form. You're giving me your first name and your email, and I am enrolling you for totally free in this five-day journey with me and hundreds of other women. We are, starting Monday, May 27, going to learn what it takes for us to shift from a place of shame towards our body to a place of neutrality to a place of acceptance. And guess what? It has nothing to do with weight loss. You can accept your body today as is without having to lose a pound. Can I have a yay for that? But it does require you working on your mindset, working on your thinking, working on your perspective, your assumption, your beliefs, which by the way, all have been taught to us by diet culture. We weren't born with the concept that our body needed to be thin to be beautiful. We were taught that at a very young age, 
Jess will talk about that today on the podcast. And then all the marketing, all the imagery, all the picture we saw in magazines and TVs and advertisement, all of that just reinforce this diet culture belief and the model that tinness, being tin, equals health and it equals happiness. So I want to take you on this journey with me. I hope you are going to join us. Go to the show note, click the link, and then we're getting started Monday, May 27. If you're listening to this and it's like May 28, can I still join? Absolutely. We're going to send you all the material that you're behind, and then you can still come on the daily live broadcast and you're still going to receive your PDF. And I want to offer that to all women. Now, my challenge to you is to not do this alone. The journey of body acceptance must be done in a community setting because you're working against the vast majority of what society is teaching us. You need support. You need people that are like-minded. You need sisters in the trenches with you that can sustain what you're going to learn during the five-day challenge so that you can transform your relationship to your body, make peace with your body, and accept your body sustainably and long-term. So without any further ado, now that I've talked about the Body Acceptance Challenge, we're going to dive into the podcast with Jess. Our guest today is Jess Baker. She's the author of What No One Will Tell Fat Girls and land well. She's also an international speaker and a blogger with a background in mental health. And she is a psychosocial rehabilitation specialist. Today, we're going to talk about why only 4% of women will call themselves beautiful, how body insecurity hinder personal and professional productivity, what are the patriarchal beauty standard and how they affect you today, and why we must engage in a holistic perspective of health to truly address what is causing our suffering. Are you ready to meet this rock star? Let's do this, sister. Welcome to the show, Jess. Thank you for having me. Honored to be here. Yeah, and I was sharing with you, I'm a fangirl, so it's a pleasure to have me here, and it's an honor to be able to introduce you to my community. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited for it all. Perfect. So we're going to start from like a place at the beginning where I actually got introduced to you was with your 2014 TEDx talk, in which you shared a very profound statistic where you said that only 4% of women will call themselves beautiful. That threw me off my chair, and I know the ladies listening will probably relate to that. Can you speak on that talk and that statistic a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So that was quite a while ago. That was, you know, like five years ago, which blows my mind. But I think that, you know, that's a great intro point. I sometimes still bring up when I do lectures with university students, the reality, you know, that statistic was produced by Dove. And so I, you know, kind of questioned it and I was like, what are they really selling here? But I read the research and I think it's a profound statistic. I think it's very common. And, you know, when I, I ask people and I've done this for years, if they feel comfortable to raise their hand, if they feel essentially like physically enough 
right? Mm. So do you feel beautiful? Do you feel handsome? Do you feel attractive? Do you feel physically enough? Whatever that means for you, because it could be a lot of different words. And it varies depending on the audience, but I've seen that statistic over and over and over again, where very few people raise their hands. And, you know, the people who don't raise their hands are not alone. We know that through the statistic. And I think just from talking to people, you know, it's really impossible for me to find many people who feel very comfortable in their body and worthy because of or regardless of their body. And so I think it's something we all deal with on multiple levels, very universal. Yeah. And the way we view our body determines the way we participate in the world. That's another quote of yours, which I think is the reality of most of the listener today. Yeah, it does. The way we view our body determines how we participate in the world. And it also determines how we like view other people in the world, how we interact with our communities. And then, of course, the personal part of, you know, how we show up, where we show up, where we don't go or show up, you know, where we kind of make ourselves small and invisible or just never go. We miss out on a lot of opportunities because we've been taught that our bodies are not good enough. And just to, you know, spoiler alert, it's a lie. It's a lie that we were taught that makes billions of dollars every year for the the diet and, you know, diet culture and kind of wellness industry. And it's not something we have to hold on any longer. And I often say to the people that I'm speaking to, you know, I wish I could change the whole world and, you know, get rid of all of the stigma and bias around so many different kinds of things. And we're working on that. And there's lots of people out there working on those things. The one thing I can offer folks in the moment is just the knowledge that their bodies are are perfectly fine and great just the way they are. And hopefully that's something that we can all internalize because starting that own, I like to call it like a personal revolution. Starting that personal revolution is a really powerful, powerful first step to reclaiming our lives and really shifting the way the world works. Absolutely. I want to talk about your book, the book that made me love you as someone that promotes and explain intellectually also, because I believe the stimulation of our left brain is integral in us healing, why we are where we are with body image today as a society. So in your book, Things No One Will Tell a Fat Girl, a handbook for unapologetic living, which by the way, I would recommend that everyone reads. Chapter three was particularly impactful for me, in which you went through the history of why we hate our body. Can you maybe give us a mini lecture of where this all started and where we are now? Yeah, I'm glad you liked that part. That was like a really, that information, the reason I wrote that book actually was because I hadn't read many things that had everything that I learned about the history, about the mental health, about the science and all of that, plus a few other things all in one place. Mm. And I felt like it was something that was really important. So I, I kind of fused together a few books that <laughs> I read that really changed the way I thought about bodies. And, you know, they're not necessarily body image books, but we could go back all the way to hunter gatherers and, and realize that, you know, it was there 
people often ask, why are we talking so much about women and body image? And if we go back to hunter-gatherers who transitioned then into farming, eventually, it wasn't a straight shot, it was an evolution, but eventually, you know, we became farmers, we stayed in one place, we weren't moving around. And that, in short, created what a lot of historians believe the power dynamic between men and women. So very simply, being able to harvest and store the most food for survival was like the most important thing. It helped you stay well. It helped you stay fed. It helped you have power. And so people were clamoring after, you know, creating the most amount of food they could store possible. In order to do that, you had to have a ton of farmers. And the only way you could get farmers was through having a wife who would have children, as many as you could feed. And so what some historians believe there, it's very a common belief, I think, is that, you know, women became property. They became farmer making machines instead of, you know, full human beings. And virginity came into play, you know, they didn't want women giving farmers away to anyone else. And so we kind of see that shift where women become property and more of a target. And that continues throughout the rest of history, where women have become the ones that are marketed to in this very oppressive way of like, you must stay thin, you must stay beautiful. And then share about the late 1800s where fat being fat was actually the best thing you could be. It was a commodity. It meant that you had food because, you know, there was starvation, there was tuberculosis, there was all of these illnesses going around. So if you were fat, you were wealthy and healthy. If you were thin, it was a sign that you were poor. And that shifted with Trains and transportation starting to come through the U.S. A lot of this is based in the U.S. economy. And with the trains came food, which everyone started to fill out. You couldn't tell who was wealthy and who wasn't just by their body size. Also, the workers that came with trains were a little shorter and stockier. So all of a sudden, you really couldn't tell, like you could before, who was important, quote unquote, and who wasn't. So the people actually decided to kind of switch the paradigm. And they said, you know what? I don't like that I can't be recognized for being powerful and rich. I say thin bodies are now the epitome of wealth and prestige. Wrote something called the obesity, very similar to the obesity crisis. Yeah, the obesity epidemic, something very similar to that. They kind of, you know, spread this around to everyone until they were believing it. And honestly, there's documentation of physicians who are very anti saying, like, why is this the dictation of health? But eventually physicians ignored the dangers of it. And that's where the money was. So it was kind of embraced as a whole. So that was a very big turning point where we see thin bodies kind of as the epitome of power and prestige and beauty. And then if you fast forward even more, World War II, post-World War II, because middle-class white women had been working in the factories when the men came back from the war in the U.S., they wanted their jobs back. I believe it was around 3 million women like doing jobs they didn't even know they could do, but they were excellent at, really keeping things going. And so they really needed a way to trick, I'm not going to mince words, they needed a way to trick these women into going back into the homes where they felt they belonged. So they created this thing that Betty Friedan calls the feminine mystique. And they said, you know, working in the factory is great and all, but you will be a superior woman if you're able to go home and be the best housekeeper, wife, and mother. 
And so women bought it. They went back home. But of course, they had learned what they were capable of in different ways. And so it didn't last very long. And they had this empowerment. Many, many, many of them had this empowerment inside of them. And they were like, we're not really content being this two-dimensional figure. And so they wanted to go back into the workforce. And this was a problem for the U.S. economy because these were the people who were spending money on housewares and really keeping the economy afloat in that way. And all of a sudden, they stopped buying. And there was a kind of this financial moment where, you know, and I like to mention that this is kind of like pre-Don Draper in Mad Men, you know, the people who came a little bit before him. And they were, you know, flummoxed and like, how are we going to spin this so that we continue to make money? Because we can't stop these women from going back to work. They want to be independently employed. And so then this is where we see what is talked about as Naomi Wolf talks about a neurosis and a briefcase. They were like, all right, we can't keep them from going to work, but we can send this money-making oppression with them that's portable. And so they kind of reinforced and really doubled down on youth and beauty. So you can go back to work, but you have to remain young forever, and you have to be this ideal, perfectionistic type of beautiful woman to do so. And of course, it's unattainable because that's how the money is made. You'll never reach it. So it was a genius plan. I mean, it, it continues to work. We're actually still functioning underneath this marketing proposition that really has taken hold in the U.S. But again, it comes down to the U.S. economy. So, you know, it's fluctuated over the years since then, but we still very much buy into that youth and beauty. And that is the part that continues to make those billions of dollars. So yes, it works. And also I've seen in my own life and in other people's lives how harmful and devastating that is for the people who participate in it. Absolutely. I'll let you take a breath of water here because... Yeah, thank you. That was a lot. <laughs> uh, take a breath. But I I want all the listeners to pause here for a moment and absorb this if it's the first time you, you've ever considered your struggle with body image in context to history in context to feminism, in context to the way we've evolved as a species. And if you need to rewind this, please do so, because this is what your mind, your left brain, your subconscious mind needs to hear. For me, that was the turning point. When I pull myself out of this marketing industry in the economy that drove me to want to have a Center body and put things in perspective that empowered me to do the work to accept myself. And I believe that that is the starting point to many intelligent women today. If you can understand that, it can change your life. So I would highly recommend you go check out Jess's book. But that's what we call today patriarchal beauty standard. Am I correct? Yeah, yeah, that's definitely a, a term that is kind of an umbrella for that. Totally. If we are in this place where we realize that, what can we do? I guess, how can we stop participating in that economy model that keeps us in pain, to be honest? It's a great question. I feel like there's a million answers because there's a million people out there. <laughs> and it's different for everyone. How can we maybe challenge that in our own lives? Well, so for me, it comes down to facts, right? Mm -hmm. I like to have meaning behind why I do things. So 
there's a few things I've realized that for some reason are not, that's why things no one will tell fat girls, like things that people never told me that just are so profound for me. Um, And one of those facts is that body diversity is a thing. And that means that what we see in our media is nowhere near representative of who actually exists and lives on this earth in very natural ways. Hmm. You know, if a body is different, we, we tend to pathologize it and make it other as if it's not normal when really diversity and even fatness is so normal. There's a statistic that 95%, and this is just truth. This is just truth. 95% of women do not have the body naturally that we see as ideal in our media. And what that means is that only 5% naturally are born with the body or can obtain the body through what we prescribe through diet culture that we see represented. What is honest is like more than 90% of us are trying to get that body, right? So we have the majority of us trying and failing, going on a diet, exercising, making it our life, investing everything we have, trying to achieve that body when the reality is that 95% of us physically cannot and will not ever reach that body because it is literally and physically impossible. We're not told that statistic. What we're told is if you're doing diets and you're exercising and you're starving yourself and you're hating yourself and loathing into this, you're living this lifestyle of self-hatred, that's where you should be. And if it's not working, it's simply because you're not trying hard enough. So try again. And that's why so many of us end up, you know, I've been, I've been on diets since I was 13. I countless, countless diets. And I, I just wrote a memoir that came out a year ago this this May, so a year ago. And in it, I list, you know, some of the diets I've tried, but it's nowhere near the comprehensive list. And I tried them because diets don't work. There is evidence to back that up in a lot of ways. The, the evidence we have that say diets work are quite often funded by diet companies. So that research is very, very skewed. But we know that if in a perfect world, diets do work only 5% have lasting results and lasting is basically five years ish or under. And what I find very interesting is that 5% of diets have some maintenance and results and 5% of women have the body naturally that we see in the media. And I'm wondering the correlation there, if it's Mm. truly a success story or if it's just the odds, but diets don't work. And so So we do keep trying and trying. So for the vast majority of us, almost all of us, it's not really an option, but we we don't see any other way to exist in the world. So taking a step back from dieting is the most terrifying thing. We have been purchasing this illusion of control and to step back and not try to change our body and to see what happens, where does our body like naturally sit for us is really, really, really difficult. It goes against everything we've been taught. For me, I finally realized that I was spending all of my time and money hating myself and it wasn't working. So I was going to just try something else because I'd been doing it for a decade. It was only making me sicker. I have polycystic ovary syndrome, which it does a lot of things. But what I learned in the last couple of years is the diets that I was on was actually 
you know, I was taught that I had this syndrome because I was fat. The reality is that the syndrome causes weight gain. So it's actually quite the opposite. So my goal was to become thinner so that the syndrome would go away. And that's what doctors would prescribe is more and more diets. And that's what society would prescribe, more and more diets. And I only have recently learned once I actually went to current research, very cutting edge, you know, dietitians, nutritionists, doctors, <laughs> these diets that were being prescribed actually like tripled the symptoms of PCOS. So it was actually harming me more and more and more, even though I felt that was the solution at the time. So really kind of challenging this very normal narrative that we have and stepping back and saying, okay, what is actually good for my body? Because all, all of our bodies are different. Our histories are different. Our lifestyles are different. What is really good for me? And maybe taking a moment to focus on our mental health. You know, when we talk about health, it's always physical. It's always that outside physical part. What about mental health? Because that's health too. And that really has what's been, you know, kind of drugged through the mud in this dieting culture is our mental health has been destroyed. And as someone who works in mental health and behavioral health, I believe very strongly in the power of, of healing there. What does our brain need? And because what our brain needs is going to then, of course, because they're connected, affect our body. So how can we take care of our mind and what are the amazing things that will happen for my body once I start to kind of focus my life that way? Does that make sense? That was a lot. That was a lot, but that was awesome. There was like a lot of juicy stuff in there. And I want to highlight this to say, for those who are listening to this episode as their first entry to Beyond the Food, I want to drive you back to a, an episode we did on health at every size. Because that's always the first thing. I'm sure you face that all the time, right? But it's not healthy to be, quote, obese, I don't want to talk about this in this episode, but I want to send the listener back. We'll link to that episode in the show note so we can take that off the table. But I agree with everything you say. I mean, I was, as a clinical nutritionist, prescribing weight loss as a solution to health. Whatever the health issue was, the solution was always weight loss. When in fact, when you look at what you introduce at the end, holistic health, we are more than just a physical body. We are a mental, emotional, and spiritual body. And that's what's missing currently in how we address, for example, PCOS. And furthermore, and I'd like you to expand on this, the seeking weight loss and seeking changing our body causes mental health issue. Absolutely. And that, and you know, that's where eating disorders stem from, right? It's this control for many reasons. And I don't believe there's shame in any of this. I don't think shame has a place in this conversation at all for anyone, whether you're super invested in the diet you're on, or you are looking to maybe shift the way you think. And you're like, Oh, man, I can't believe I did that for so long. And it wasn't working. For me, there's just no shame we're all doing the best we can. And none of us asked to be taught that our bodies are bad or that our worth lies in our bodies or any of the other very harmful ideas that have been so rooted in our culture. None of us asked for that. So to challenge it is a huge thing. It's very difficult, but it, for me, it's also very important because yes, it takes us to that holistic wellness. And for me also, what I've been doing a lot of research around is what our body stores, there's a really cool book called The Body That Keeps the Score. And 
You're familiar? Well, I'm a huge fan of Gabor Mate, so I don't know if you... Okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. So just realizing that, you know, we store our history, our memories, our thoughts, all of these things in our bodies as well. So we really are this one all-inclusive kind of biological machine that's magical. And what we think very much affects our body and the way it functions, and vice versa. And, you know, we've just always had this very one-dimensional view, it feels like, as a society of what's good for our bodies without questioning what's good for our brains. And how does taking care of our mental health and our spiritual well-being and our holistic approach to life, how does that then positively influence our physical health. And so I feel like those are all kind of facets that we can look at and are really important when we're talking about health in general. Absolutely. So here's my thought on the clinical nutrition, having practice with women. There's no research on that on this. You can tell me, Jess, if there is. But my observation have been a lot of women have health issue around their feminine organs like PCOS, like PMS, like premenopausal syndrome. And I believe it has to do with how we engage with our femininity, which is linked to our body image. And we store that energy and causes imbalances, tissue, health issue that gives us those condition. Have you explored that at all? I haven't explored that specifically, but that aligns with a lot of other research around how neuropsychology affects different parts of our body and where we store those types of things. So that wouldn't surprise me. I haven't read anything very specifically about that area, but you know, there's a big rabbit hole there we could dive down, but yes, it does affect all of us. I think that's just a very safe statement is that, you know, what we think affects our body. And I wonder, you know, let's break it down really simply what stress does to our body, right? There's this biological response to stress. And so if we think about it like that, like cortisol levels and all of this, and like you're going into fight or flight and all of, or freeze. If we think about that and just kind of apply it on a broader scale, self-hatred, loathing, anger, rage, all of the things that can come from feeling very worthless because we can't achieve this ideal body is going to affect us on a biological level in our in our body as well. So yeah, I, I co-sign that. I'm not sure about the specifics of, of the femininity and all of that, but that's interesting. Yes. So here's another point of view for you, again, on clinical observation, is the trauma caused by dieting. So trauma to the physical body, and we know that through research that weight cycling has more impact on one than actually weight loss. But also, I believe, and I've seen and I've experienced myself, I was on a diet since the age of 12 for 25 years straight, the emotional trauma that I live through, through hating my body, looking at my body reflection in the mirror every day and shaming myself. That is traumatic. And we know that we carry that trauma in our nervous system. And that causes us to engage with life differently. Have you explored that area of research or? Yeah, actually I have. That's actually kind of where I'm at right now is the polyvagal theory and looking at our nervous system. For me, so yes, Absolutely. And what we don't recognize sometimes too, that I really had to sit with that was very uncomfortable. And as I was, you know, I've, I've been doing this work for about seven years. 
on myself and, and publicly. And it was very, very hard for me. And it still is, to be honest, to find joy in movement. You mentioned health at every size. One of the the components of health at every size is, is trying to find, you know, some joy in movement. And that doesn't compute for my brain because movement exercise, I've been doing it my entire life since I was five. And it was always kind of this punishment. And so in my quest, I'm doing air quotes again, in my quest for health, as I was dieting and exercising my, you know, for over 10 years, I'm 32. So since I was 13, you know, I was consistently traumatizing myself with this punishment. And then as an adult who is now cognizant of what had happened when I was younger, trying to go to a gym, trying to go to a movement class and find joy was impossible. It was actually re-traumatizing. So a lot of people, you know, here I'm coming from a mental health side. If you're feeling depression, someone might say, well, you should go to the gym or, or go run or, you know, get some of those endorphins. But the reality is that the endorphins come after. So it's, it's delayed and you put yourself or me, we'll just talk about me. I would then put myself in a very traumatizing situation that the endorphins don't even count after that because I'm re-traumatized. I'm going through <laughs> a lifetime of, I'm reliving that lifetime of punishment of not being good enough. And so finding joy in movement has been really hard for me and I'm not willing to put myself in a place that re-traumatizes me because I care too much about my brain at this point. And I know that that, that isn't necessarily healthy for me in, in a holistic way. So it's been very tricky to find things that I actually do enjoy because many of them have been ruined. And that's kind of a grief process. I think something that people don't talk about a bunch is when you start to do this work, you kind of have to let go of a lot of promises. Mm -hmm. And there's sadness and grief that comes with that. And so kind of grieving the loss of, of some of those things that I used to do that I very much could love if it weren't for my past experiences. Right now, the thing that I love to do that is movement that is joyful for me and the only thing besides sex mm -hmm. is dancing. That's where I find some happiness. But I mean, that's pretty much the extent of it. So, you know, figuring out what works for you, but also knowing that you, know, you don't have to put yourself through that trauma over and over again just because uh, you're trying to heal something or or you feel like you should. We're getting into like, you know, kind of the the more complicated parts of healing our relationship with our body. And I know that, you know, I could go really deep and I won't, but I'm hoping that makes sense and is semi-helpful. Yes, it does make sense. And so we've explored that topic a lot given my clinical work. So there's a few episodes on the podcast that relate oh, to that. Oh, great. Great, great. So we, we've explored a lot of somatic work with a course that I've taken myself through Irene Lyon. And it explained why when you're trying to help support and teach women in accepting their body, why looking in the mirror is so difficult. Like literally your nervous system will react in backing away from your self-reflection and shaming yourself. It's not your fault. You're not broken. It's just how your nervous system responds to that. So we'll close that subject, but we both are aligned and actually studying both the same field right now. I love that. I never put that together. So thank you for, for yeah. bringing that up. Fascinating. Yes. I want to talk about using words to describe ourselves. And you say that word matter, and I agree with that. And you call yourself fat. I do. I've just started, like just started probably in the last six months doing that. 
And it did change my life. But I want you to explain to women who currently find it very offensive to be called fat or call themselves fat or don't agree that we both do that. Can you give us a little bit more on that calling ourselves fat? Yeah, I think it's okay to not use the word fat. What I have discovered for me is that it is a very empowering word because it has been, you know, since I went to kindergarten, it's been weaponized and used as like a way to wound and hurt me. Ever since I could understand that fat was bad, it was has been, you know, used as a torture, a way for people to really knock me down. And it, and it worked, of course. The last thing I wanted to be called was fat. In doing this work, what I have realized is that fat is a very unique word in that it describes a body of adipose tissue in a way that nothing else can. And so describing a body as fat, we remove ourselves and put ourselves on another planet. It's the same as calling a body thin, calling, you know, my ballet flats, they're black. The sky is blue. Clouds are fluffy. Tom Cruise is short, <laughs> you know, like whatever descriptors you want to use, you know, so-and-so's hair is brown. Like those are all just descriptors and they're all neutral. And it's just, it's information. It's information of what the thing is. And it's neither great and it's not terrible. And fat falls into that. If we were to come back down to this earth, especially in diet culture and society, that's not the case. People feel like that is a very negative thing. I haven't found another word that works the same way. So people use obesity. That's a clinical term that's used to pathologize. People are welcome to use whatever they want. But I use fat because it is a neutral descriptor. And also, when I use it myself, it automatically takes away the weaponizing of that word from others. And it can no longer be used to harm me. So now, you know, my reaction instead of, you know, being doing everything I can to not be fat, or be called fat or to cry after being called fat. You know, people tell me I'm fat all the time trying to hurt me. And my response is just like, I know I am. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm also blonde. I'm also tattooed. You know, I'm also semi short and I'm also, you know, a lot of things. So it doesn't hurt anymore. There's no hurt there. And I can honestly tell you, there are things that people can say that do wound me. Fat is not one of them. And it hasn't been for a long time. And it takes away the power of the word. Absolutely. Reconciling myself with fat has been probably one of the most healing component of my body image work, because it took away also the fact that I was valued through what my body looked like. Mm -hmm. My body is a vehicle for me to go through life, not the right. way to value myself. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, the power of selfie is also something that you talk about and how that can help us in our journey. Can you expand on that a little bit? Absolutely. You know, I think it's a very fraught experience to have pictures taken of you. Yes. To take pictures of yourself, to see them, you know, or seeing them from a, a different perspective can bring up a lot of body shame. Mm -hmm. What I now realize, and I didn't know this when I wrote the book, but now, now I realize this, again, with the nervous system, because we see this distorted perception of ourselves, the same way when you look in the mirror, right? It feels very dangerous to see ourselves in an image that maybe isn't what we think flattering looks like. And flattering is a socially made up thing that 
we're trained to look for. And obviously it's in ideal bodies, which 95% of us do not have. So we're not going to find it in those photos. So there's a lot of shame around, you know, not meeting that standard. And what I've realized is that, you know, how many times do we take pictures of ourselves and then, you know, delete them because they're not flattering enough or not pretty enough, or we think we look bad or chin or I don't know, any number of things. There's power though, in posting pictures your favorite ones at first, and then even later trying maybe the ones that you feel are especially unflattering. Because what we're doing is we're really challenging the feeling within our body that we'll die. <laughs> it is our nervous system telling us that this is dangerous, the threat to put this online, to post it, to show it to anyone. But when we do that, we then calm our nervous system and we're like, look, we did this very scary thing and we didn't die. And it's okay. And our friends even liked it, you know? So it's a really cool way to show up in the world and like say, here I am, here I am. And I'm okay. Even if you don't really truly believe it. And to keep doing that is really powerful. I also believe it's amazing in this day and age to have so much social media opportunities to share different bodies. So I always encourage people to follow lots of diverse people online because it's so great to see diversity, the diversity that actually exists in our world instead of the curated media. So, you know, adding your selfies to those is also a very powerful thing for our world. You can't see me because the camera's not open, but I'm shaking my hands because that's what we teach, right? We teach that in our program that you can rewire your nervous system to your body image by actually engaging in posting picture and looking at your reflection because you bring safety back to that event in your nervous system. And with time, you change how you respond to those reflections. Absolutely. Absolutely. The safety. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's how clinically we can. So we teach body yeah. neutrality. We don't teach like body positivity because that's a more clinical application, but reteaching your body, your nervous system to be safe will change your thoughts because it's all connected. Your nervous system is what direct your thoughts, right? Yes. Yes. So that's why I wanted you to talk about the selfie and how you see it. And I'm very happy that you're now integrating the somatic and nervous system because I think that's how we can actually, I don't want to say treat, but that's how we can help heal at the most basic, fundamental and powerful level by rewiring our nervous system. Yeah. And the cool thing is you don't even need to know why it works. You know, sometimes we get so in our head about this and, and, So I, I've worked in behavioral health for around a decade, you know, also working by myself, but still in mental health. And I think we can get a lot in our head about things and not really understand why they, why they happen. But one really cool tool that I learned years ago through dialectical behavioral therapy, DBT, is, you know, when you can't change your thoughts, you can change your actions. And that then in turn changes your thoughts. And so... If we can't get out of a mind spiral, sometimes just doing an action, whether we know why it works or not, can really change then the way we are thinking and then, you know, calm ourselves and feel a little bit more safe. And I think that you don't have to understand why selfies work, No, <laughs> but you can just do that literal action and the rest will follow the same with following diverse bodies. You just click follow on a hundred new people. You just scroll through every day. It's fairly 
mindless, if you want to call it that, but it's really rewiring the way you see and uh, you interact with other people's bodies and your bodies very subconsciously, very quietly, but it does do that for you. And so there's some things we can do that aren't as grueling to get through, right? Yes. Little actions that have bigger repercussions that we may not understand and that's okay. But taking selfies is one of them and following a lot of people that look different is also another. Yes. And that is going to lead me to the end because we're almost over by our interview time. But I just want to say this. This is why if you want to heal yourself, if you want to change and transform how you engage with food or your body, seeking the right resources that know all the logical and the left brain thing and gives you the right action is essential. Because otherwise, you probably will not have the result that you want, you will not see the change in your behavior. So you do work with people one on one with that all this information package into helping people change their relationship to their body. Correct? I do. I do. It's called mental health and body image coaching. But of course, it's very, it's not your average coaching yes. <laughs> experience because, you know, I'm a credentialed peer support specialist, recovery support specialist, and I've done, you know, international wellness facilitation trainings. And I have this very interesting background. So there is coaching where you are the expert on you and you do have all the answers, but I'm here for you to also help explain, you know, why these things happen and, and maybe some action steps and tools you can use. So I do that one-on-one and I really enjoy working with folks one-on-one. Yes, that is what I'm doing currently. And I love it. Yes. And I want to encourage people to seek professionals like you that are a living the challenge, right? You have gone through and you are in the journey, but also that have the most recent research and intelligence on how we can really heal that at the root. So the link for people to seek you out if they choose will be in the show notes. Great. Okay. I wanted to thank you for this. It's very, very rare that I get to have a conversation about somatic experiencing and the nervous system and like all of these very fascinating neuropsychological conversations around body image because they they're so separated in our world. And so I love the work you're doing. This was so fun. Thank you so much. <laughs> you're very welcome. And I feel we're going to continue offline because we are rare. The one that have this information and are willing to look at it from this perspective. And I think the reason why is we're both in diverse body and we have a personal journey and we're willing to see the nervous system information from that perspective. So I'll give you more offline information on that. Oh, that sounds great. That sounds great. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. And thank you for being with us. My pleasure. There you have it, ladies. Isn't she amazing? Go follow her work on social media. Go subscribe to her blog. She's a daily source of inspiration for me and she teaches me all the time. So I know you will benefit from following her and make sure you're joining us in our body acceptance challenge. That is the best way for you to start putting an application what you've learned today in the podcast. Simply go to show notes, stephaniedozy.com slash 189.
We have a great show coming up with you next. It will be a story about weight gain. I won't say any more than that, but it will be another edition of She's Beyond the Food. Last time we talked about my journey with exercise and trauma. And the next one's going to be the journey of weight gain. Can't wait to see you on the other side. I love you girls. And I'll see you on the next episode.